Hello and welcome to the Outpost Community Church Sunday podcast. My name is Greg and we are currently going through a series in Matthew and we are so glad you tuned in. If you'd like to hear more about the vision and mission of Outpost Community Church, you can go to our website at outpostcommunity.org and you will find it there. Otherwise, we pray that you have a wonderful week of worship and that this message would inspire you to follow Jesus with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All right. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good. It's good to be back. Back at it right now. So, hey, if you have your Bible, uh, grab it. Go to Matthew chapter 8. That's where we're at, guys. Cruising through. We're planning on finishing Matthew in like 2026. It's going to be fantastic. It'll be a good day. Who knows, the Lord might be back by then. It'll be fantastic. All right. Hey, go to Matthew chapter 8. While you're going there, uh, let me just tell you, I know that a lot of you guys, your week is crazy. Uh, You had an opportunity to be gone for four days this weekend, and you hung out here with us. That's awesome. And we're glad you're here. And I I have an amazing job because I know that following Jesus in the public or out there or with your kids and your family and all that stuff, it's exhausting. So my job really is just to encourage you today in the Lord uh, Chet and the team who did a great job. Um, I pointed over here. He's usually over there. You're not Chet. Chet, there we go. Uh, man, they encourage us. I'm so thankful for our worship team who work hard, who are talented, God's blessed and gifted. Just a day that we get encouraged, guys, to keep following Jesus. He's still king. And I know during the week you kind of forget and you start thinking maybe it's your toddler who's the king, all right? Because you're losing your mind and he's controlling everything, all right? Dang Boone. Uh, and so. Uh, but hey, guys, today we get to be reminded that Jesus is still king. I get to encourage you. What a great thing. So why don't you guys stand up if you're at Matthew 8. Let's read God's word together, and then we'll dive in. All right, let me read this. I'm going to read a little bit. Of, I'm, I'm going to read last week's passage and this week's passage, which is not long, so don't freak out. So Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Amen. It's the word of the Lord. Let's have a seat. Um. Hey, anybody ever been to the splash pad over there at Mentog Park? Man, so, so glad that thing exists. Super fun. For about four days of the year, you can go there and your kids' lips don't turn blue. The rest of the time, it's just freezing. Um, well, when Boone was little, I, we went to the splash pad, and Trip wasn't even here yet, but we were running around with Boone, and there was this kid on the splash pad who was a bit of a bully, all right? Big kid throwing his weight around. He's probably like three and Boone was at the age where he could just barely walk. So this kid was running around, and he'd see another kid. He'd just push him down. So he kept pushing Boone down. Now, I'm a father, and if you know anything about dads, that can kind of take us off a little bit, all right? Who's this three-year-old punk think he is, you know? And so I'm watching this, and finally he pushes Boone down, and Boone starts crying. And so I'm frustrated. So I get up. I go grab Boone. I pull him over. And I'm, I 
listen, I struggle with anger. So I'm looking around for parents. Like, where are the parents of this child? And I can't find them anywhere. And so anyways, I come sit. I said, Boone, just go over here. Stay away from that kid. And so Boone's kind of playing. And then I look over. And the most wonderful thing in the whole world happened. This little boy, all right, this splash pad kid, walked up. And there's this little hole in the ground on the splash pad. And uh, he walked up to it. And curiosity got the best of him. He went and he hovered over it. And he looked right into it. And something happened that I think you guys know. It shot out and hit him right in the face. Now listen, that wasn't the full glory of the moment. His head snapped back. He fell on his back, got up, started crying, and ran to his parents. And I go, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> like, you know that moment you're just like, you just want somebody to get it? I, it was like the justice of the Lord. And the Lord was like, Greg, I love you. I will protect your son. And it was beautiful. You know, there's a proverb in the Bible, Proverbs 16, 18, that says this, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You guys ever heard of that? Pride comes before destruction. destruction, the fall, right? Pride is something that every one of us in the room deals with. And pride is something that makes us uh, vulnerable, and pride is something that makes us a vulnerability. What do I mean by that? Well, it makes us vulnerable because pride creates this feeling of control, that I can control what's going on in my life. I'm the big shot. I know what's going on. All you one-and-a-half-year-olds get out of my way, right? But we're not really in control, are we? Anybody notice that? We're not really in control, and our pride leads us to believe that, which makes us vulnerable. But it also, when you're out walking in pride or somebody's walking in pride, it makes that person or it makes you, it makes me a vulnerability. What do I mean by that? What I mean is pride creates controlling people, all right? Do not elbow your spouse right now, okay? Pride creates controlling people. And how do you guys feel about a controlling person on your team or in your family or as a boss? Do you like it? No, it's a vulnerability for the team. It gets in the way. It's a problem. Somebody's going to get hurt in the process. So today, guys, we're looking at a passage that is a wake-up call for every one of you in this room, me especially, every one of us who struggles with control. Let's just have a little moment of honesty and confession. Anybody in here struggle with control? Just, just let me see a hand. That's what I'm talking about. Good job. I'm so proud of you. The Lord's proud of you right now. You know that? Be encouraged. Uh, so today we're going to look at the solution. What is the solution to our controlling problem, guys? Well, I'm going to give you the answer. It's faith in God. The, the solution to our control problems, our control issues that make us vulnerable, make us a vulnerability, is simply faith in God. And today we're going to look at it. I'm going to try to prove it to you. Three points. Number one, if you're a Christian in this room, which is a lot of you, okay, you have been invited to follow, not lead. That's going to be point number one. You've been invited to follow, not lead. Number two, we're going to look at how great storms expose great deficits in our lives. And lastly, we're just going to talk about, man, we need to know who it is we're actually following. Who are we actually following? So let's look at Invited to follow, not lead. Okay, Matthew 8, 18 through 22. What's the title of over verse 18 in your Bible? Somebody shout it out. Anybody else? Is that the same? You have the same thing? Cost of following Jesus? All right, last week, Chet taught and did a really good job of exposing to us 
hey, what's the cost of following Jesus? And I can just summarize it like this, guys. Uh, the, the, the cost of following Jesus is you must surrender being the leader of your life. When you decided to follow Jesus, that means that there's a new king in town. There's a new uh, person sitting on the throne of your heart, and it ain't you, right? Who is it? Jesus. You've invited him to sit on the throne of your heart and be the leader. Now, that's why it's so costly, because Jesus has a tendency to lead us into things that are really hard and really difficult. Anybody notice that? Following Jesus, did you have to, like, give up some stuff? Did you have to kind of change some relationships? Right? Did you have to get a new perspective? It's not easy. And so following Jesus, we've got to give up our control or, listen, our perception of control and surrender every single aspect of our life to Jesus. Anybody, like, you came to follow Jesus and that was super easy for you? No hands? It's like, man, that was easy. Just like, I can give you everything. It's all yours, Jesus. I'll follow you all the way to the end. Well, there's a guy in this Bible who's like many of us. He's the scribe in the story. And the scribe, it says, he goes to the teacher and he says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Right? I'm in. Right? I'll let you lead. You teach. And Jesus says to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man is nowhere to lay his head. So he says, man, I'll follow you, teacher. And Jesus said, great. You're just going to have to give up controlling where you sleep. Or to say it differently, you're going to have to give up your control of being comfortable. Anybody like being comfortable? Man, I love being com- comfortable, man. Our whole, <laughs> I see you, that's funny, Mike Mach is waving in the sound booth. He likes feeling comfortable. As he leans back with his hands behind his head like this. You guys can't see him, but I'm totally exposing him right now. So if you want to serve back there, I see you, all right? I'm just kidding. But hey, here's the thing. Our culture is religious in its pursuit of being comfortable, isn't it? Everything that's sold to us is marketed in a way it's like, these are super comfortable, right? Think yoga pants, most comfortable pants in the entire world, right? Even, even cowboys now have spandex in their pants. Why? Because it's just easy to move around. They're like, where's this been my whole life? It's comfortability, all right? You no longer have to wear tent canvas, okay? And so comfortability is something we love, we enjoy, but here's the problem. Following Jesus is not always comfortable. It's not always comfortable. I want you guys to imagine for a second. Imagine you're, you, you existed 2,000 years ago, and you're running with Jesus and the disciples. Uh, would you be embarrassed to be the guy who's always complaining on the team, always whining about how uncomfortable it is? God, this ground is so rocky. We really have to lay here, Jesus? Man, it's so hot. Do we have to really be down by the Dead Sea? Are you kidding? Jesus, I am so hungry. Can we just go to town and get some food? Would any of you men be kind of embarrassed to be that guy on the team? Anybody? I would. I'd be so embarrassed to be that guy because we love to be comfortable. And our feeling that we need to be in control, we should have control of our environment, it makes us a vulnerability on the team. We always got to cater to Greg, man. Peter and John and Andrew are like, man, get it together, bro. Like, didn't you realize who you were following? Well, then a disciple comes in. So that's the scribe. He's got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And then the disciple, it says, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, I really appreciate Chet and Matt's work on explaining this because at first, what's it look like, guys? It looks like he's saying, hey, 
If you have the opportunity to go bury your father, but you're following Jesus, don't go bury your daddy. That's kind of what it looks like it's saying. Anybody agree with me? But culturally, it's kind of a cultural slang. It's, it's basically saying uh, what, I, what I would equate it to is a fear of missing out or a fear or anxiety around your future. Because what's really going on is this guy's saying, like, hey, Jesus, I, I can't follow you until I first go and get this inheritance I'm supposed to get from my father. And so this was an excuse that was kind of common in the day. Ah, I, I'm just a little too busy. It's kind of like when we're, a lot of us are going, man, Jesus, hey, I want to follow you. But first, hey, let me party a little bit. Let me experience the world a little bit. Let me do a few things. But then, hey, listen, when, when I'm in my 60s, I'll be ready to follow you. But I'm young, you know? Or it's like, man, Jesus, hey, listen, I want to be generous. I want to give. But first, man, let me pay off my college debt. Let me get my house paid off, right? Let me work up the ladder a little bit. Then I'll be generous, right? Or, hey, you know, I want to serve. I want to be a part. But, Lord, just hold on a second. Let me, just, let me get married first. Let me get a house. Let me get a job. And then if I got some time, I'll jump in. That's the same thing you say. It's what he's saying. First, let me go get these things, and then when I have time, I'll do this. It's this fear of missing out on the things of the world. It's control that holds us back, and these guys are facing control. Now, here's the thing. Commitment to Jesus isn't hard to understand. You guys all cognitively, you get it. When he says, follow me, take up your cross, deny yourself, you go, I get that. Intellectually, I understand what that means, but actually doing it is really hard. Anybody agree with me? Super hard. Super hard because we want to have control. Where are you leading me, Jesus? Where are we going? What are you, where are we going to sleep? What are we going to eat? How's this going to turn out? And Jesus doesn't tell us. It's really, really difficult. Now, my assumption at this point in the passage, when I was reading it and studying, getting ready, my assumption is these two guys we just talked about, they didn't follow him. They didn't get into the boat with Jesus when they got in the boat to sail across the sea. That's my assumption. They didn't get in. In verse 23, look at it. It says, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Who are we talking about, y'all? Probably who? The 12? They got in the boat. My assumption is these two, they didn't get in the boat. Now, when I read this, I want you guys to think, how good, listen, men, you know how this is. How good do you think some of them disciples felt paddling away, all right? Those two guys are on the shore. You got in the boat, right? How good do you think they felt? You're like, Listen, where Jesus sleeps, I sleep. When they were getting in the boat, it's a reminder to some of them that they've left their careers to follow him. It's a reminder to some of them they're missing out on family time and family moments because they decided they want to follow Jesus. And, you know, just think about Peter paddling away. I'm one of his followers, man. I'm in the boat. You guys imagine? Peter, I, I, I can relate to Peter, all right? Peter is somebody who, in Matthew 26, he says to Jesus, Jesus says, hey, all of you are going to run from me. And Jesus said, man, if everyone leaves you, Jesus, I will never leave you. I'm with you, Jesus. Twelve hours later, he abandons Jesus because a teenage girl asked him, do you know Jesus? Oh, no. Right? I don't know who it is. Leave me alone. Right? And so, listen, I imagine that Peter maybe had a little pride as he paddled away, but I imagine also he's not the only guy. He's got a little bit of pride. Now, it's at this moment right now that I want to remind you guys of the splash pad kid. You guys remember him? Thought he was a big hot shot, that three-year-old turd, right? And God got him right between the eyes. These disciples are paddling out, and they're seeing these two men on the shore, probably thinking pretty highly of themselves, and God is about to send them something that exposes them. 
And this is what I wanted to, we're going to switch to point two, which is this. Great storms reveal great deficits. You hear me? If there's anything you need to know in your faith right now, you need to know this. Great storms reveal great deficits. And so, let's read that. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, Jesus, was asleep. Isn't that a comedic contrast? We're going to die. Snoring. And they went and woke him, saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Here's the thing about confidence in yourself, guys. Confidence in who you are is fragile. It's fragile. If you're confident in who you are, it is fragile. Hey, anybody in here? Al, you changed over the last 70 some odd years, right? Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Your confidence in who you are is going to change. If you're confident in what you have, listen, that could be taken from you like that. I have friends who've watched their houses burn down and lost everything. If you're confident in what you can do, I'm 18 years old. Nothing can stop me. You see what my squat numbers are? Listen, if you're confident in what you can do, ask Ashley Lundvall. It can change in a second. If you're confident in your age, I'm the prime of my life. I'm 26 years old. Ain't nothing to touch this, right? You're going to be 36, right? You're going to wake up and wonder why your back is the shape of a Z. It's fragile. Listen, guys, here's the problem. Some, what's the most dangerous thing in your faith is when you think that you're pretty good and who you are and what you have and what you could do and how old you are. When God allows a season of those things to just kind of sit and nothing bothers you, no storms hit your life, it's a real dangerous season. It's a very fragile season because the longer you go in that direction, the further off track you're going to get. The bigger your pride's going to grow. Anybody experience that? It's a mirage. It's a lie. And the farther you go chasing that mirage, thinking that it's life, man, when you finally wake up and realize you ain't what you once was, right, and you're never going to be as good as you've ever been, man, it can be devastating in a marriage, in a life, in your family. So here's the thing. The lie that you're believing is that you have control because of the things that you have. Now, let's do a little bit of a, a test here. I'm going to ask you five questions, and I guarantee you, I know the answer that every one of you is going to give, all right? Unless one of you freaks me out and says something really strange here in a minute. All right, let me ask you five questions, and let's just have a moment of sober consideration. Let's consider how in control you actually are. You ready? Everybody ready? Okay. You feeling a little out of control right now? I know. I got the mic. You can leave. You got, you got feet. All right, here we go. Number one, were you in control of when in history you were born? No? Okay. Were you in control of who your parents would be? Anybody? No. Were you in control of where you would be born? No one? Okay. Were you in control of where you landed in the sibling lineup? Okay. Last question. Were you in control of whether you were a male or a female when you were born? And you're still not, just to be clear. Okay? I, I don't, listen, my friends are laughing. If that's a struggle for yours, look, not laughing, but you're just not in control. Okay, those five things, listen to me. Every one of you, the answer, the proper answer is no. You were in control of any of those things. Do you realize that those five things right there are like the five pillars of who you are? And you had zero control over every single one of them. 
Nothing has shaped you more than those five things in this entire world. How in control do you think you really are? If you were a woman right now, right? Let me hear from you women. You in here? Okay. Well, all right. There we go. Uh, if you were born 200 years ago, do you think your life would be a little different? Okay, ladies, can I stay on you for a second? All right, all right, hold on a second. If you were born a man today, do you think your life would be just a little different? Yeah. It'd be a little different. Okay. It'd be a lot different. Men in the room. Hey, it, it, I don't know who your daddy is, but if you were born into this world and Donald Trump was your dad rather than your dad, do you think your life would be a little different? <laughs> wow, that was very strong. Yes. Um, yeah, a lot different. Hey, guys, do you think if you were born in Russia rather than born here, do you think your life would be a little different? Your language, your perspective on life, your feelings about what is fair, okay? Okay, if you were, those five things have shaped you in a massive way. How in control do you really think you are? Now, I want to share some with you guys. This is what us Christians believe. This is what the Bible teaches us. Did God know with extreme detail, the answer to all of those questions for you. Every bit of them. He knew them. In fact, you could say that he had control over them, bringing them about. Would you agree with me? That's what it says. That's what, that's what the Word of God teaches us. Now, let me tell you this. Let's go a little further. Do you know that God has been in control of every storm that you face in your life? Maybe you're going through a storm right now. You need to know that God is allowing it to happen. Every storm you've ever faced in your life. 2,000 years ago in Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus was asleep on the boat, God was in control of that storm hitting those men at that moment. Now, that brings up a question that every good follower of Jesus has to wrestle with at some point, which is, why? Right? And usually we ask the question like this. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Anybody ever felt that question? Anybody ever wondered that? Yeah, me too. Listen, it's a good question. It's a great question. Why, has God, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Okay? Well, let's, let's, let's go through it real quick because it's important for this conversation. Because I need you to know that God allowed this storm to hit these disciples. And you need to understand a little bit about the why. So first thing first you need to know, Christians know that all that is bad can be traced back to people. Did you know that the Bible teaches that? That includes natural disasters. Disasters were not natural in a world that was apart from sin. It's the reason why when God goes to renew the world, at the very end, part of the judgment is natural disasters. Yes, the world is falling apart because of you. Christians know that all that is bad in the world comes from human people. Second, Christians know that though they suffer because of the sins of others, others suffer because of their sins. Right? Listen, some of you suffer because of my sin, but I suffer because of some of yours. Now, here's what we usually do. But yes, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so, right? At least I'm not a Hitler, right? That's usually who we go to. Let's do this, okay? That's what we call a lie of comparison. It's a nonsensical lie in the Bible. It has nothing to do with what God says. It's satanic. It's G- Listen, the enemy of God wants you to start playing the games of comparison. So let's play the game for a second, and let's expose the lie behind it around comparison, okay? You are better than some other people. Do you know that? Can we all agree? You Christians, we have a tendency to go, oh, I'm not better than anybody. No, that's stupid. You are better than some people. And there's some people that are better than you. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. All right, let's just imagine that all of you are better than Hitler. 
okay? It's probably not hard to agree, okay? So let's just use that, because that's where everybody, I haven't killed anybody, I didn't create a genocide, right? Okay, great. So let's imagine that this wall right here is just total crazy, insane depravity, and Hitler's over there, okay, and he's on that side of the spectrum. And you, you're just a good old saint, man. You attend church, you go to, you know, uh, Christian events occasionally, you know, you leave your Bible out on the desk, whatever the case would be. And so you're over here, all right? So is there, can you guys see the difference between you standing over here and your goodness and, and Hitler way over there? Can y'all see the difference? Is there a difference? Is it visible to you? So it matters. It totally matters. We should kill Hitler. We should not kill you as far as I know. So you guys can see the difference. Now, do you guys see God anywhere between here and you, between Hitler and you? Is he on the spectrum anywhere so far? Okay, let's add God to the spectrum for a second. Well, if we're going to add God to this little linear perspective, we're going to have to zoom out. Do you understand what I'm saying? Light years zoom out. Now, if I zoom out, what's going to happen between me and Hitler over there? We're going to get closer together. Okay, so Chet, come with me. Chet's Hitler. Okay, I like it. So you come on over here. Now listen, let's imagine God's over there. We've zoomed out, right, 100 million light years away. God's way over there. Can you see the difference between us and God when it comes to righteousness? Can you now see it? He's way over there. Yeah, okay. Now, can you see the difference in righteousness between me and Chet? Not really. Not really. Can y'all say thanks, Chet? I might kill you. Yeah. Here's the, here's the point I want to make, guys. Here's the point I want to make. When you sit and compare yourself to others, if you leave God out of the question, yes, there's going to be a difference. But if you suddenly bring God into the room, there's not much of a difference between you and Hitler when it comes to you and God. So the comparison game that Satan's trying to let you play is nonsensical. It's unbiblical. It's a waste of time. So what happens, that question... Why do bad things happen to good people? Can't even ask it. The real question is this. Why does God allow, allow bad and evil to exist to begin with? That's a good question. You want to know what the answer is? It's very, very simple. The reason that God allows evil to exist is because he loves you. The reason God allows evil to exist is because he loves you you. I want you to think for a second, because I think some of you are going, what in the world is this heresy? It's not. Because understand this, every Christian and person who understands the Bible knows that all that is evil and bad in the world has a human origin. So if God were to eliminate all that is evil and bad, what does that mean for you? He's got to eliminate you. And so in his love and in God's patience, he allows evil to exist because he wishes that no man would perish, but that all would come to eternal life. He's being patient with you. Now, I think what happens is we go, okay, uh, we start to think, okay, maybe God's just way out there, and he's not really concerned about the things that are happening here, right? He's not really involved. He's just letting things kind of spill out of control, but I want you to know, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is allowing, with patience, evil and bad things to happen because he loves you, but God is crazy intentional in his involvement with the world. You know he's involved? He's involved here, guys. 
And so what happens is when he allows a great storm to hit your life, he's got a great reason. Because great storms have an incredible ability to reveal great deficits in our heart. Look at what he says. This is what he says. And behold, there arose a great storm in the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. What are you seeing happening in the disciples because of the storm? They're calling on the Lord. Okay, let me go to Mark 4, 38. This is another place where they cry out. But he, Jesus, was on the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? What does it reveal about the disciples and their relationship with the Lord? It's revealing a deficit of faith. They don't trust him. That's why he says, right? Why are you afraid, O you of little what? Faith. (coughs) Why are you afraid, you of little faith? The storm revealed that they didn't fully trust him. They didn't fully trust Jesus. Why is this important? Now listen, some of you got to go, hold on a second. Hold on a second. The storm really was big. The storm really was dangerous, right? This is a big deal. If they're fishermen and they think they're going to die and they've lived on this sea their whole life, do you think they actually are in a life and death situation? We could trust their opinion. They're probably in a life death situation. Listen, guys, this is not like, oh, man, I almost hit that elk and it could kill me. That, like, split second, I feel like I was going to die for a second. This is like bullets flying through the air. The feeling of death is like a fog that you cannot get to go away. Has anybody ever been in that place where you just are like, I could die at any minute? You could feel it. I've never felt that. It's astronomically different than swerving around an elk. I could pass away. Matt Chandler is a pastor down in Dallas, Texas. Some of you guys have heard of Matt Chandler. And Matt Chandler was somebody who was strong on the surface. But one Thanksgiving, he passed out, hit the deck, and they took him to the hospital, and a brain scan revealed that he had stage four brain cancer. And he is going to die. And here's what Matt Chandler says. It's it's the point we're trying to make. He says, sometimes God will allow difficult things into your life to reveal where you still don't trust him. Listen, a brain scan revealed that Matt Chandler had a tumor, but the tumor revealed to Matt that he still lacks faith in Jesus. You hear that? Great storms reveal great deficits. Now you go, hold on, I'm okay with little storms, okay? I'm okay with that teacher didn't like me and gave me a D, I can handle that. But are you telling me that I'm supposed to trust my, like, the blood in my veins to God? Well, before I answer that, let me ask you a question. Do you know who you're following? Do you know who you're following? This is our third point. Guys, you've got to know who you're following. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. Do you Listen, how insane is it? If this is true, if this is true, look, and you don't have to believe it, but holy cow. Then he rose, what? Woke up off the cushion, looks around, uh, rebukes the winds and the sea. Hey, calm down. And there was a great calm. Jesus took a great storm 
and with a word turned it into a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? (laughs) Who do we just get in the boat with? Okay, here's the thing. Great leaders, friends, listen to me. We're talking about following Jesus. Great leaders can inspire men to do great things. You guys seen this? Can you guys think of a great leader? Great men can inspire us to make great sacrifices, to leave our families, to suffer horrible conditions, even lay down our lives. Uh, one man I think that it was a great man in history was Napoleon Bonaparte. You guys ever heard of Napoleon? Napoleon was, by all considerations, a great man. He, he lived between 1769 and 1821, and he was a giant in history. <laughs> Not physically, <laughs> But he was a giant. He was a soldier. He was a general. He was an, imp- uh, an emperor. And eventually he was in exile. But nobody would consider him a theologian. Have you ever thought, theologian, Napoleon? Well, listen to this. Uh, near the end of his life, while he was in exile, Emperor Napoleon was asked by one of his generals about the deity of Jesus. This is what his general Bertrand said. I cannot conceive, sire, how a great man like you can believe that the supreme being ever existed, him, uh, exhibited himself to men under a human form with a body, a face, a mouth, and eyes. I just can't believe you believe that. The general goes on, let Jesus be whatever you please. The highest intelligence, the purest heart, the most profound legislator, and in all respects, the most singular being who's ever existed. I grant it. Still, he was simply a man who taught his disciples and deluded people just as Orpheus, Confucius, and Brahma. Do you hear what his general is saying? Jesus is just another guy. Maybe he was a great one, but he's just another guy. And here's Napoleon's response. He said, General, listen, I know men, and I tell you, Jesus Christ was not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. But that resemblance does not exist. This is between, there is between Christianity and other religions the distance of infinity. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon sheer force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men will die for him. In every other existence but that of Christ, how many imperfections? Listen, from, that, from the first day to the last, he is the same. He is majestic and simple, infinitely firm and infinitely gentle. He proposes to our faith a series of mysteries and commands with authority that we should believe them, giving no other reason that the, than those tremendous words, I am God. Now listen, referring to other so-called gods that have been worshipped by men, Napoleon says this. He says, listen, nothing, talking about other gods and other religions and other men, this is what Napoleon says. He says, nothing announces them divine. He says, I see nothing godlike in any of them. Muhammad, Brahma, Buddha, the presidents, the leaders, I see nothing divine in them. On the contrary, there are numerous resemblances between them and myself foibles and errors which ally them to me and to humanity. It is not so with Christ. Everything in him astonishes me. This is Napoleon. 
His spirit overawes me, and his will confounds me. Between him and whoever else in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. He is truly a being by himself. His ideas and his sentiments, the truths which he announces, his manner of convincing, are not explained either by human organization or by the nature of things. The Bible contains a complete series of acts of, uh, and of historical men to explain time and eternity, such as no other religion can offer. If it is not the true religion, one is very excusable in being deceived. You hear what he's saying? If Christianity is not true, listen, you got permission to be deceived. Why? For everything in it is grand and worthy of God. I search in vain in history to find the similar to Jesus Christ or anything which can approach the gospel. Neither history nor humanity nor the ages nor nature can offer me anything with which I am able to compare it or explain it. Here, everything is extraordinary. Listen to this. The more I consider the gospel, this is Napoleon, the more I am assured that there is nothing there which is not beyond the march of events and above the human mind. Even the impious themselves have never dared to deny the sublimity of the gospel, which inspires them with a sort of compulsory veneration. He, he concludes with this. What happiness that book procures for those who believe it. That's what Napoleon says. What do you say about Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? You can't even compare to Napoleon, but you understand what, Jesus, what Napoleon is saying about Christ. He, it blows him away. In Matthew, the disciples say, Lord, when they cry out to him. In Mark, they say, teacher. In Luke, they say, master. Yet they doubted his goodness and his power. Who is Jesus to you? Is Jesus who he says he is in the Bible? To you. Friends, you're sitting in a chair. I'm talking to you. Is he who the Bible says he is to you? Now, here's the problem. Now, you know he's the Alpha, the Omega. He's the beginning, the end. You know he's the one from Daniel chapter 7 who's going to rule the world with an everlasting dominion. And when everything passes away, he will not and his kingdom will remain. You may know all those things, but do you believe them? Well, here's the thing. I'm almost certain that those disciples who were sitting in that boat, when they were paddling away, they felt pretty confident. They would said, man, I believe in you, Jesus. I'm all about you, Jesus. But it wasn't until that storm came and scanned them to reveal the deficit. God knows how much you do and don't believe. And here's the reality, guys. Every one of us in this room, there are these massive chasms of faithlessness in our hearts. Are we willing to admit it? Anybody in here have doubts? I've got doubts. I'm not always confident. I don't always believe. And what happens is sometimes something happens with my kids or a great storm hits my life and it reveals to me another place where I still don't trust the Lord. And so what's our, supposed to be our relationship with these storms? Here's what I want to tell you. Your relationship is supposed to be this. You're supposed to welcome them with open arms. Because the greatest adversary in our life is not sorrow and suffering. The greatest adversary for you and for me is faithlessness. That's the reason why the Bible says that it is by grace through faith in Jesus that you are saved. It's not by grace through, how much have you suffered? How much have you gone through? Okay, that's plenty. Okay, then you're saved. The atheists of our day, guys, there's, these, there's four guys. They're called the four horsemen of, of atheism. One of the men, he wrote a book, and basically what he said was, the chief end of man is to avoid sorrow and suffering and pursue pleasure. He sees hell and sin as sorrow and suffering. 
So you should avoid it at all costs. But Christians, wouldn't we say that's, that's just immaturity? That's complete immaturity. How can you coach a football team if you go, hey, you should never suffer. You should never feel pain. They will never come to the morning workouts ever again. It's actually through the pain of suffering under the weight of a barbell that it makes you stronger to perform in life. Guys, let's not act like idiots, like the atheists. That doesn't make any sense. For the Christian, that's just immaturity. For the Christian, we go, sorrow and suffering is the weightlifting that takes me closer to Jesus. It makes me stronger in my faith in him. That's what sorrow and suffering is. Guys, I want to I wanna read to you guys something real quick. Listen, if I'm boring you, listen, I only got one service, so I'm just trying to do, I'm going to take as much time as I want now. <laughs> I want to read you guys, I don't know if you've heard of this book. Hannah Hernard wrote this book. It's called Hind's Feet on High Places. Places. Hind is a deer, so it's deer's feet on high places, okay? But deer doesn't really, you know, go with high. So anyway, so anyway, she wrote this book. It's an allegory of the Christian life. I highly recommend it to you guys. It's like Pilgrim's Progress. I love this. Read this to your kids. But at the, so the main character in this book is a, is a girl, and her name is Much Afraid, which is like you. And she's the Christian in the story. And Much Afraid gets invited to uh, go on a journey to the kingdom of love, and she gets invited by the great shepherd. Who do you think that is? Okay, great. Way to keep up, all right? And so Much Afraid, though, when she goes to begin her journey, the great shepherd in all of his wisdom says, you're going to need two companions, and I want you to meet him here. And the two companions he gives to her are these two tall, dark women dressed in black. And their names are Sorrow and Suffering. And when she sees them, what do you think her response is? She freaks out. She doesn't want to be near them. So when she starts the journey to following the Lord to the kingdom of love, she kind of keeps her distance. She doesn't want their help. She doesn't want to be near them. But wherever she goes, there they are. They follow along with her. Well, over the course of her life, of Much Afraid's life, they start to help her out. She slips, they catch her by the hand. When it gets through something that's a little treacherous, they both hold her hand and they help her get through it. Later at the end of the book, she's no longer scared of them. She begins to reach out herself to grab them. When she has to jump into this chasm, they grab her underneath the arms because she didn't have any strength anymore. And she just surrenders her weight to them and lets them carry her through. Well, eventually she dies. And when she dies, she gets to arrive at the kingdom of love. And I want to read to you something. Uh, about her. So her name is no longer much afraid because listen, when you die, your name's not going to be whatever it is anymore. It's going to be changed. She goes from being much afraid to grace and glory. So at that, grace and glory regarded him, the, the king, Jesus, earnestly. And there were almost tears in her eyes, for she remembered suffering and sorrow, the faithful companions whom he had given her before. It had been through their help and gentleness and patience she had been able to ascend the mountains to the high places. All the time she had been with her Lord and King, receiving her new name and being crowned with joy and glory, she had been thinking of them and wishing, yes, actually wishing and longing that they were there too. For why should she receive everything? They had endured the same journey, had supported her and helped her, and been through the same trials and tracks of the enemy. Now she was here and they were not. She opened her mouth to make her first request, to beg her Lord to let her keep the companions he had chosen in the beginning and who had brought her to the glory of the high places. But before she could speak, however, he said with the same especially uh, lovely smile, here are the handmaidens, grace and glory, whom I have chosen to be with you henceforth and forever. 
Two radiant, shining figures stepped forward. The morning sunshine glittered on their snowy garments. Listen, men, just keep with me, okay? Making them dazzling to look at. They were taller and stronger than grace and glory. But it was the beauty of their faces and the love shining in their eyes which caught her, uh, caught her heart and made her almost tremble with joy and admiration. They came toward her, their faces shining with mirth and gladness, but they said not a word. Who are you? asked Grace and Glory softly. Will you tell me your names? Instead of answering, they looked at one another and smiled, then held out their hands as though to take hers in their own. At that familiar gesture, Grace and Glory knew them and cried out with a joy which almost, was almost more than she could bear. Why, your sorrow and suffering. Oh, welcome, welcome. I was longing to find you again. And they shook their heads. Oh, no, they laughed. We are no more sorrow and suffering than you are much afraid. Don't you know that everything that comes to the high places is transformed? So you brought us here with you. We returned, we returned into joy and peace. It's beautiful, so beautiful. I always think I'm a man, and then I start crying and reading about stuff like that. Guys, for us Christians, sorrow and suffering, the great storms, are not something that we're scared of. It's in our immaturity, beginning to walk with Jesus, that we see those things as these big problems. But if you ask Alan Sheila, you ask those who've been walking the faith for a long time, they're going to tell you sorrow and suffering were the great things that led us to where we are today. A 75-year-old man, Malcolm Muggeridge, terrible last name, he said this, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything that I've learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. So that's what Hannah Hernard and Malcolm Muggeridge are saying. What's the Bible say? Anybody know James 1, 2, and 3? Let me read it to you. This is famous. You know this. Count it all joy, my brothers, my sisters, when you meet trials, great storms of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Guys, you want to grow strong in your faith? <laughs> Sorrow and suffering. You got to take them by the hand and say, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. And let them expose in us the places where we still don't trust the Lord. So what have we learned? Let's review real quick and wrap this up. I know it's a billion degrees in here, isn't it? Imagine if we had a second service. It's only going to get hotter. But here's what you need to know. You, listen, with that in mind, are you complaining? You got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. You've been invited to follow Jesus, not lead Jesus. Listen to me. You've been invited to follow Jesus, not lead Jesus. So you must get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Maybe someone in your community has been sharing their sins, and that makes you feel uncomfortable. Anybody ever been in that spot? Like, Whoa, what are we talking about here? Right? Yeah, it's uncomfortable because you have sin. You're like, am I going to have to start talking about this? Maybe you're leading a grade at Outpost Kids, and you feel inadequate. Or maybe you just gave your life to Christ. You were not raised by a dad who taught you the way of Jesus, and now you're expected to teach the way of Jesus to your kids, and you feel uncomfortable. Let that expose something in you that drives you to want to go learn more about Jesus. Have faith. M maybe, 
Uh, you're like one of my friends, the Donnellys. We're going to talk to you about in the coming weeks. The Donnellys are a family who now are living in Burma. They spent 200 days of this last year, more than anybody in the Free Burma Rangers, behind enemy lines in a war zone with their four daughters. And they did it because God called them. And there's been sorrow. There's been suffering. There's been pain. But it's been a joy to do it. So you've got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. You have been invited to follow, not lead Jesus. So you must surrender your control over your destiny and fully commit to Jesus' Jesus's will for your life. Listen, guys, I, that's the basic prayer of a Christian. Not my will, but your will be done. You've got to give up on your future. Listen, I know your family, teenagers, your family's got a plan for you. Your spouse has got a plan for you. Your family's got a plan for you. Your, your teachers, your, your counselors, everybody, your church, everybody's got a plan for you. But the question you guys got to figure out is, what is Jesus' plan for you? And you've got to commit to it with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Say, I want to follow you. Number two, great storms reveal great deficits. You've got to accept it and you've got to embrace it. You control your life as much as a windmill controls the wind. Listen, you control your life as much as a windmill controls the wind. You cannot control the storm, but you can take advantage of it to produce power and energy in your life, just like a windmill. Let the storms, let the winds that blow in your life, let them come. Let them blow against you. Man, like, like Paul, what does Paul say? To live as Christ, to die as what? Man, let it come. You throw me in prison, I'll tell the guards about Jesus. You're going to kill me? Great. Fast track the meeting Jesus. That's all I want anyways. Bring it on. What are you going to do to me? I'm not scared of people who can kill the flesh. You know what I'm scared of? I'm scared of the one who can throw me in hell. That's what I'm scared of. So I'm not scared of what you say. Now listen, guys, I'm a little scared too. So we can act like, oh, I can sit up here and say, I'm not scared of what anybody thinks. Bah. No, I'm scared. Right storm comes along, and I freak out. And so here's the thing. I've got to stay humble. I've got to stay open. Right? Don't be the splash pad kid. Stay humble. Man, I, I, a leader that in my life always said this, man, dress yourself with humility. It looks good on everyone. This morning, my wife, she's standing with me. She's got some new pants on I've never seen. She's like, should I full tuck? Do the French tuck? I don't even know what that means. Right? She's like, what do I do here? Do I look good? I'm like, baby, you look awesome. You know what? But my wife has never looked as good as she does when she dresses herself in humility. It's the same with all of us. When I get prideful, I look pretty ugly. When I dress myself with humility, it's pretty good. You listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. Man, the biggest problem at Outpost I have with everybody and I have with myself is that you're just a bunch of prideful people. That's okay. We're all, it's a sin. We're all working through it. We've got to stay humble. That's why community matters. Community, guys, if you're a member here, community is a place where we open up our hearts to others. We let them come in and challenge our motives, question the way we live. Why do we do that? Because we just don't even trust our own heart. We open ourselves up. Man, let me ask you guys, is your community trying to live authentically with one another? Are you trying to counsel each other biblically according to God's word? Are you trying to admonish one another faithfully? If not, why not? Man, tease that out, figure it out, and get to it. Because when you do, it's going to protect you from unnecessary storms. You know what those are? There are storms that hit your life that you had no control over. There's sometimes there's storms that hit your life because you were just being a dingbat and you were running in your own way. You're running in your sin and something happened. Anybody been in those? Okay. Anybody got scars from them? Yeah, me too. Last thing, know who you're following. For Napoleon, Jesus stood alone in history. Does Jesus stand alone in your heart? Man, only you can figure that out. I can't help you. I'm here to encourage you to it. 
Just determine. You can't control the sorrow and suffering in the days to come, but you can control your devotion and discipline. That's why we, encur- we continually encourage you guys here at Outpost to devote daily to relationship with Jesus. John 15, 5 says you can do nothing unless you abide with him. Cling to him. You scared to talk about your faith and your workplace? Cling to Jesus. He'll help tease out that fear you've got. You scared of what might happen with your finances? Cling to Jesus. He'll show you why you don't need to worry. You scared to address some sin that you're seeing in your spouse or in your friends? Listen, hey, cling to Jesus. He'll help you work through that. You got to know who you're following. And if you do that, guys, if you devote daily to a relationship with Jesus, listen, I'm telling y'all, I am telling you, as a young man who's dedicated himself to studying the Word of God, meditating, praying, seeking it, and not perfectly, but giving myself to it, I'm trying to invite, listen, it is, God comes through on his promises, man. It is better than anything the world's offering you. I promise. I promise. Teenagers, sixth graders who are now in the room because you're not in fifth grade anymore and you're here, and I know you're bored out your mind and you're like, it's a billion degrees. Listen to me. Following Jesus is the most exciting, wonderful thing you could ever do with your life. Your daddy might want you to be a doctor. I'm telling you right now, being a doctor without Jesus is going to be miserable. So guys, know who you're following. Here's my final point as we leave, okay, before we get up here and worship. Here's my final point I want you guys to understand. Let me ask you a question. Where was Jesus in Matthew 8 in the storm? Where was he? He's asleep, but where is he? He's in the boat. He's in the boat. When the storm come, did he sneak out, walk across the water, stand on the shore, wait for it in? Did he like zap himself to heaven to get out of the storm and get away? Where was Jesus? Right there in the storm. I want you guys to know, I don't know what storm you're in or what storm you're going to face, but Jesus is always right there in the boat with you. He's not freaking out like you are because he trusts his father. So you don't have to freak out, but you need to know that Jesus is right there with you. Every storm you go through, everything you face, he's there. Why am I confident he's there? Because there was one storm that came and we all abandoned him. A storm that came into Jesus' life where everybody left him. Even God the Father turned his face away from Jesus. And it was the storm of God's wrath poured out for your sin and my sin on Jesus. He hung alone on the cross. And when he hung alone on the cross, he died as the only good man that bad things have happened to. And he did it for you. So as you leave today, what's the encouragement? Guys, the encouragement is this. You're following a God who loves you so much that he would go through a greater storm than you could ever face to set you free so you can enjoy a heaven that you were never meant to experience. So what are, Christians, what are those moment, momentary light struggles you're going through compared to what Jesus has done? They're nothing. It's joy. It's just another workout. It's another test. And we say, bring it on, Lord. Your will be done, not mine. Amen. All right, let's pray. God, I don't really love your storms, but a storm led me to you, and I'm really thankful. And uh, I know some of my friends are going through a storm. I pray they come to you. Uh, I pray they will go to their community. I pray they'll dress themselves with humility, know who they're following, and know who their friends are following, and run side by side for the faith of the gospel. I pray for this church, man. We lack faith. That's our biggest problem here is we lack faith in you, God. I just pray that we choose devotion and discipline rather than waiting to get our teeth kicked in. Help us, Jesus, I pray, to choose to just trust you, to read your word, to get up early in the morning, to pursue you, 
to get with our friends, to ask for the storm of questions to come in so that we might be refined and changed and grow. I pray that we just have faith to trust the way that you've told us to be the church. I pray, God, that we wouldn't hold back, but we would just go all in, that we would get in the boat. I pray that we wouldn't have pride because some other men wouldn't do what we're doing. I pray that we wouldn't have pride because other women are, uh, are doing it better than we are. I pray we would just get away from comparison and we just choose to look into your face and trust you. Help me, God. I don't trust you. Help my unbelief. I pray that you.